Six days of deliberations now and still no verdict in the case of accused drug kingpin Carlos Lader. Prosecutors say Lader is a leader of Colombia's notorious Medellin drug cartel. And he's being tried in Jacksonville, Florida on charges of smuggling in more than three tons of Colombian cocaine. Today, the judge let jurors re review videotapes of interviews with Lader. On those tapes, he denies any cocaine trafficking, but he does call drugs a weapon against imperialism. The U.S. government was offering Jack Reed a sweetheart deal to turn on his good friend Carlos Lader. He would have to get on the stand and give up all of the secrets of Norman's Key and the drug cartel activity on the island, or face the wrath of the court. They had no idea who they were dealing with when it came to Jack Carlton Reed, however, and the deep love that he had for his friend Carlos. He defended Carlos to his dying day. He never snitched on Carlos. His life would have been totally different. Jack's life would have been totally different had he just said what he knew, but he did not want to say anything that would hurt his friend. So he paid for it with his life behind bars. People don't understand that. Well, what are you, stupid? Save yourself. Would I have saved myself? I'm not in those shoes, but probably. I mean, you know, I'm not gonna hold my tongue if I know I'm gonna go to jail for the rest of my life. I probably would have snitched, but I don't know, I'm not in his situation. Nobody can understand that. I respected that about Jack, though. He um, maintained his loyalty to Carlos to his dying day, and for that reason, it was very important to me that Carlos read the book. It was so important to me. It was one of the most important things of my adult life that he would read the book. And finally, the book got to him when he was uh, still incarcerated. And, um, and he read it. And then after being released, you know, I have correspondence that I will not reveal, but he has pretty much blessed the book. And, you know, I... I just needed him to know that Jack stayed loyal to him till the end. I don't know why, but That's it's important amazing. to me because Jack gave up his life. And Jack has said, well, you might consider me an adventurer or a damn fool. Mm -hmm. But Jack was Jack and that's what made Jack Jack. Jack and Carlos were soon reunited, not under the circumstances they'd hoped for, in the courthouse bullpen as they awaited arraignment in Jacksonville, Florida. There was at least one positive. As they prepared for the trial, he would be able to spend time with his amigo. The government, despite their failure in getting Jack to cooperate, had convinced a staggering number of people to roll over and snitch, including a number of very familiar names to our story. The trial, which began on November 15th of 1987, would last over seven months, with almost 30 cooperating witnesses set to testify against the men. In order to properly dive into the trial, we sat down with Jack and Carlos's attorneys, Stephen Weinbaum and Ed Showhat. Here's what they had to say. In this particular case, Jose Quinone, a wonderful lawyer with whom you probably should speak, uh, contacted me and told me that he had been retained uh, by Carlos's family, by his brother Guillermo, and uh, to represent Carlos. This was uh, just probably a, a few short days after Carlos was uh, famously put on an airplane by the, turned over by the Colombians to the DEA and put on an airplane and brought back to the United States without any formal extradition proceedings, uh, which didn't exist at that moment. 
uh, as I recall. And again, uh, Jose called me. I had known Jose for a number of years. And he called me and asked me if I would be interested in serving as his co-counsel. And that's how it happened. I, I met with Guillermo once or twice and uh, in, in, in Miami. And then Guillermo liked me, I guess, and we were off and running. I first met Carlos at the uh, U.S. Penitentiary, what was then the Supermax at Marion in, in Illinois. Illinois, I think. Maybe yes, Indiana. Yeah. Maybe Marion. Indiana, you're correct. Uh, seven stories or so below the ground. The prison was so secure because there was no prison above ground, everything was below ground. There was no human way anybody could ever escape from there. And I remember uh, Jose and I traveled to Marion and we got in, we rode that elevator down into the ground. We hadn't experienced anything like that in our careers. And I remember going into a, uh, a lockup area there, which was the attorney visiting area, I guess. And Carlos was waiting for us with his head bowed and in his arms, almost like he was just resting there with his head in his arms. And he, he looked up. I don't remember exactly what he said, but I do remember that uh, he was extremely pleasant and anxious to hear ideas about how the matter would proceed, to learn how his matter would proceed. And I found him uh, through most of the work that we did. Uh, though he had a, uh, a strong veneer of political beliefs, uh, I found him to be a very easy client to represent. I was appointed in what became my first federal criminal trial to represent Jack Reed in, I think it was 1987, who I learned quickly was the co-defendant of the notorious Carlos Later, which jury was supposedly going to be able to forget about the fact that a couple of their members said that they'd been urged by friends to hang him by the balls, actually said that in federal courtroom. And uh, what happened was the, the federal judge, um, Howell Melton, Southern gentleman, he just quickly figured out that he had to extract from these people a promise to quote unquote, set it aside. He became, he became known for that phrase during jury selection, which took about six weeks. Um, it was fascinating too. Uh, I, I was uh, not an inexperienced lawyer by that point. I had come out of the Miami Public Defender's Office where I was a senior trial attorney. And I had pretty good, a lot of experience, but not in trying federal cases. So I went to school. Shogat and Kenyon were terrific. Uh, and I, to this day, are fans of theirs. Um, but I learned great deal mostly from Ed. Mm -hmm. uh, trial took about eight months, but it really took like two years of everybody's life. Almost every single day, except once the trial started, we had Fridays off. 
but it went on for a couple of two two years i guess worth of uh, litigation and my house became uh case defense case central with about 18 boxes of stuff all over the place uh-huh. Kenyon and Shohat got a got an apartment in town and we got to be pretty good friends over the next year or year and a half it was a unforgettable experience when it came to Carlos later referred to as Joe by Weinbaum both attorneys found the man referred to as crazy Charlie to be an absolute pleasure to deal with, despite his reputation as a Hitler-loving lunatic. Hell, even prosecutors Robert Merkel and Ernst Muller were having friendly chats with later during the trial. I thought he was like a uh, fascinating character. He was uh, he he had as enough um, enough class and enough moxie to come across as a genuine character. You know, he was no fool. Uh, he was very likable. He was non-neurotic about his fate, about the case. Uh, you could see why uh, Jack had uh, had been so enamored of him. You know, he was a smart guy, was bilingual. Uh, and I guess you could also say that if you if you smuggle a billion dollars worth of cocaine in, you got to have half a brain. But that, you know, that's the unspoken assumption. Um, uh, but yeah, he was very friendly, very, very friendly. Unlike Jack, he was friendly to virtually everybody that... Uh, that worked in the case. And he was kind of funny too. You know, he talked to, he talked about Merkel as mad dog and Ernst as the puppy. Well, both men enjoyed later. They agreed that Jack could be a bit more difficult to deal with, but one thing was certain. He was loyal to Carlos, no matter the personal costs. Jack was a unique personality. I, I will tell you this. I don't know what Steve has told you that in my opinion, he was much harder to deal with long-term than, than, Carlos ever was. Jack was never, never friendly and never cooperative in my view. He, he had his own way of looking at things and he was fiercely loyal to Carlos Slater. Fiercely, unremittingly loyal to Carlos Slater. And he, he blew his whole life because of it. He was, uh, uh, he could be he could be gracious as hell, and he could also be rancid. Um, he had didn't tolerate what he thought were fools or foolish things. Jack forbade me from doing anything along the lines of pointing out uh, that would have the effect of pointing out how much more guilty Joe was. Right. You know, but that was part of the. The integral part of the defense was to say, okay, Joe did this, Jack didn't do it. There were like 90 things in this case that Joe did and Jack didn't do it. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I was able to, to, to do that and Jack wouldn't let me, uh, wouldn't let me play that card because it emphasized that Joe was guilty, mm-hmm. which kind of crippled the defense. So as the trial began, security was at a fever pitch. There were rumors that Carlos had threatened to kill a judge per week if he wasn't released. Rumors of a cartel hit squad on its way to Jacksonville. Remember, this was the Colombian Rambo that was on trial. And the good old US of A was going to put on a show surrounding his drug trial. They had police everywhere and and SWAT teams on top of the building because they thought Carlos was so dangerous. That was BS. That was something that right. Mad Dog Mueller came up with because, well, we got to sensationalize this for the media because he had political aspirations. 
it was uh, amazing. There were there were cops on the roof of the building and the adjoining buildings with automatic weapons, and there were agents in the courtroom and in the halls who had automatic weapons in their gym bags with them, sitting in the corners of the courtroom during the trial. They reported that Joe said he was going to kill a federal judge for every week of the trial. Of course, he denied saying that, and I never saw any proof. But that's all it took to to get the. Uh, to get federal agents in on every damn bus stop and roof in the in the immediate vicinity. In fact, you probably heard of this, but they were so concerned about Joe being uh, being able to communicate with anyone and and inflict violence on the the judge or other people, resulted in them refurbishing a holding cell that was antiquatedly built into that building, the old federal courthouse downtown. They built, rebuilt that cell for him. There was all sorts of rumors about hordes of Colombian guerrillas descending on Jacksonville to break later and read or later out and take them back to Colombia. And so they built in the basement of the federal courthouse in the months preceding the trial, they built cells for them mm-hmm. that didn't exist, special cells for read and later to live in during the trial, Reed later never left the courthouse. It's hard to describe the cauldron that these attorneys faced as the trial date neared. They were representing a member of the Medellin cartel and his co-defendant. That, shockingly, was the easiest part. They were also being deluged daily by the national press that had converged on Jacksonville and even facing threats from the community for having the audacity to give Jack and Carlos legal representation. Ed Shohat explains. It was un, it was unremitting, and I, you know I look back on it, and I have looked back on it over the years. The the atmosphere that Jose and I, and of course the clients, endured was uh, like nothing other than you, that you could imagine. I mean, first of all, Jacksonville is not the bastion of liberality of the world. Uh, it is a very conservative place, and we were getting death threats, mostly mostly from right-wing radio call-in shows, uh, literally death threats. And I had to move a private investigator, actually a team of private investigators who alternated into my home, the home that I'm sitting in right now talking to you from, um, to protect my wife and my two kids during that period of time. Now, nothing ever happened. There were no incidents. But there were a period of about a month when that trial started where I had physical protection here around the clock. As the trial began, the government began unfurling their mountains of evidence, beginning with close to 30 cooperating witnesses. The first person to take the stand? Carlos's former partner and friend, George Young. And if you're wondering why Carlos held a grudge against George until his dying day, well, George implicated Carlos Lader's mother in the drug trafficking. Yep, that is all kinds of fucked up. Good rule of thumb, don't fuck with a drug lord's mother. He was always open and friendly. The only time we had a rough time was over the incident with his mother. Mm-hmm. And he he didn't take well to that. First of all, he didn't take well to George Jung 
uh, providing that testimony, it, it totally infuriated him. I could understand that. It was totally gratuitous and unnecessary. Really, it didn't have to. That story did not have to be told by John. Correct. And I, I think that he made the mistake of telling it to Merkel, and Merkel probably, in his twisted way, insisted that he get that twist that knife into Carlos in that way. Uh, but it did make Carlos very angry. And then when his mother told Jose and I, which she should never have done, that it was true what Jung had said, uh, that that put the capper on it. Yeah, we we couldn't call her as a witness. Yeah, and, and giving that news to Carlos was not easy, and he got angry. While the prosecutor used Carlos's mother to twist the knife into later, a DEA agent had his own way to do the same to Jack, as Mayke explains. There was a situation in the courtroom where the DEA guy was looking right at Jack, and he had stolen a ring from Jack that Carlos had given him. Carlos had given Jack a ring that meant a lot. It was like a turquoise ring, I don't know. If, and, and the DEA agent stole it and was wearing it in the courtroom and looking at him like, F you. There was someone else in court who was there to support Jack. The sight of her must have also been another knife twist for Jack, Sheldon who was never charged or called to testify, made sure to be in court every day to support Jack with her new boyfriend by her side. Ouch. Jack revealed that Sheldon was very loyal and, and came to see him every day in court and would bring fresh clothes for him, that she was just lovely to him. She did bring her boyfriend with her. Um, she pretty much did move on. And then after many, many, many years of corresponding, um, Jack said that she broke the relationship off. Yeah, she broke the relationship off because she wanted to move on with her life and her boyfriend was jealous that Jack would be a hard act to follow. Totally respect that. The woman needs to move on with her life. The parade of snitches would also include Ed Ward's crew, British Andy, Russ O'Hara, Carlos Toro, and pretty much anyone outside of Jack Reed who flew a plane smuggling coke from Norman's Key. Hell, the government even got legendary journalist Walter Cronkite to get on the stand and testify about the time he sailed into Norman's Key, only to be politely told by armed guards to turn his boat around. Yet even with over 100 witnesses testifying, they were never able to pin any violent acts on Carlos later. They brought up everything they could, even to the point of uh, putting Walter Cronkite on the stand because one of the one of the goombas told him, hey, this is private property, this island, you can't be here. Walter had stopped in with his boat, his yacht, uh, as some people did. And when they, when people did that, they were nicely but firmly told by whoever at the time that was around there not to stay, that they were not welcome and needed to leave for their own safety. All the witnesses said the only thing Carlos wanted to do was snort cocaine and have sex. And he, the, the, the flights in from uh, Colombia with the cocaine would often have beautiful young women on them for exactly that purpose. Yeah. And they, they, they would stay a while and go back and new women would, would be brought in. And that, that was part of the testimony at the trial. There was no, as I recall, aside from perhaps the incident with Walter Cronkite, uh, there was absolutely no evidence or suggestion of any violence. And of course, that, that incident, which was 
pure show by Merkel to put Cronkite on the stand. Uh, he just testified that armed men chased him off the island, chased him away from the island. Look, uh, I had handled at that point my share of significant drug cases. I followed that with my share of significant drug cases. I never handled a case that had more probably than four or five accomplice witnesses uh, who had struck deals with the government testify in any given trial against a client of mine. This one had 29. And that, that right there tells the story of the lengths to which the uh, Department of Justice, Bob Merkel, the U.S. Attorney in, in uh, the Middle District, uh, the lengths to which they were willing to go to make sure that Carlos did not walk out of that courtroom a free man. I mean, when you think of 29 separate individuals who were in the federal prison system, who the government went to to make deals with to reduce their sentences in order to convict Carlos, you start to get uh, the picture of, of what happened in that trial. Uh, I don't know that that number has ever been equal, though Frank Rubino insists they called 30 in Noriega. I've never counted them. In May of 88, after seven months and countless millions of dollars spent by the government, the jury in Jacksonville, Florida reached a verdict that came as no surprise. The DEA had their trophy on the wall. Federal prosecutors nailed a big one today in the continuing war on cocaine. They got a guilty verdict in the Florida trial of Carlos Lader, the most powerful Colombian drug dealer ever brought to trial in this country. NBC's Brian Ross has been on the trail of Lader for a long time, and tonight, he describes the significance of this conviction and the challenges still before U.S. narcotics officials. The jury of eight women and four men deliberated for seven days under extraordinarily heavy security after former Miami policemen working for later were spotted following jurors to their homes. Just before noon today, the jury returned its verdict, finding later guilty on all 11 counts of drug smuggling involving more than three tons of cocaine smuggled into Florida and Georgia. In his closing argument, the U.S. attorney, Robert Merkel, holding up one of Later's submachine guns and standing next to a cart loaded with cocaine, said Later had built his drug empire on a Bahamian island, Norman's Key, using violence and corruption. More than a hundred witnesses testified against Later, including one of Later's most important drug pilots, Andrew Barnes. We could fly out of Norman's Key with a load of coke back then and be almost 100% guaranteed of flying straight into the U.S., no matter how he did it, uh, without being tailed. Some of the most damaging evidence against Later came from Later himself, a flamboyant and erratic personality who admired Adolf Hitler and who talked openly about his drug activities in this 1985 interview in the jungles of Colombia, at a time when Later had allied himself with leftist guerrillas. Cocaine and marijuana has become a revolutionary weapon against American imperialism. And the jury was shown films that the Colombian drug boss had made at his Bahamian drug base, the remote island of Norman's Key, which later tried to pass off as a jet-set resort. The prosecutors even produced a photograph of later snorting cocaine on Norman's Key. It took six years and millions of dollars to capture later, bring him to trial, and convict him. But today's conviction is not likely to do much to really disrupt the huge cocaine business. 
Carlos was sentenced to life plus 135 years for his role in Norman's Key, despite not being convicted of one act of violence. Jack Reed was sentenced to 15 years for conspiracy. However, as what can only be viewed as punishment for not cooperating, the U.S. government wasn't done with him yet. Absurd. And I don't understand, how do you give somebody life plus 135 years? What the hell does that mean? And how do you give someone like Jack two life sentences? What does that mean? You're gonna come back as a zombie? What? <laughs> All right, you're dead, now you got another life sentence to live. I, I don't get it. And I meant to ask that, um, his attorneys that, I think I will. After this, I may call Stephen Weinbaum and ask him about that. I don't get it. It's just trying yeah. to prove a point, I guess. Right? Not only are we right. going to give you life, but we're going to give you another 135 years. What does that mean? <laughs> I'm sure somebody out there who's listening knows the answer. Let us know. I of think course. it's absurd. In a case the government alleged grew out of the testimony during Jack and Carlos's first trial, even calling it the son of later case, Jack Reed was indicted on conspiracy to distribute cocaine and CCE charges. I call utter bullshit on this. The government was pissed off that Jack Reed had refused to cooperate and they decided they were going to bend him over. The indictment accused Jack of conspiring with Pablo Escobar, the Ochoas, and the rest of the cartel to operate a continuing criminal enterprise, hence CCE. Just so no one is confused, a nonviolent drug smuggler now is being placed into a cabal with the narco-terrorists in Colombia. Jack was convicted a second time in 1990 and had two life sentences added to his 15-year term. It was at this moment, during her research, that May Kay realized being Jack Reed's biographer was no longer enough. She would make it her mission to see that Jack, a nonviolent criminal serving a draconian sentence, was released from prison. Next time on Glamour Profession. <laughs> 